Amen. Amen. Good morning. Y'all sound good singing this morning? Love it hearing, uh, standing back there and, and listening to everyone worship. It's a great day and it's, uh, there's something outside this morning. I saw it. I was up early, but then uh, later, it was yesterday and today, I saw this bright thing in the east and I didn't realize, realize what it was. It took a little while. I was like, oh, that's the sun. Hadn't seen that in a while. It's always nice to get that, you know, with a trade-off of it being 11 degrees, but it was still nice to have sunshine um, without all the, the rain and all that good stuff that we have. We're blessed by it, but it was nice to see the sun, especially on a Sunday morning. I always like to see the, the sunshine. I think we've had more dreary Sunday mornings in the past few months than we've had in the history of, of this church. Um, so it's, uh, it's been a crazy, crazy time. So until every person knows, we're still in this series and we're gonna be in Acts chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, I'd like for you to flip over to Acts chapter 16. We're gonna spend all of our time in this chapter. I'm um, gonna kind of summarize a little bit of the beginning and we're gonna jump into uh, kind of verse and text by text beginning with verse 16 of chapter 16. But what I want to tell you, first of all, this is Paul's second missionary journey. It happens around uh, 49 to 52 um, after Jesus' death. It's recorded in Acts chapter 15 um, all the way through chapter 18. So all this is part of this second missionary journey. He's accompanied by Silas, and they are later then joined by, by young Mark. Uh, there are some historians who say the way that Luke writes the book of Acts, that there, Luke may have joined them himself when he uses the pronoun us several times in there. Uh, he could have been with them. We're not, that's not very con, you know, confirmed, but it could have happened. But Paul and his companions, they found a place of prayer outside the city on the Sabbath. They met a lady named Lydia. She was a seller of purple, as they say. So it's these fine linens that she would probably sell on the streets there. Um, baptize her and her family. Uh, Lydia, uh, seller of purple, probably affluent, offered them hospitality of her home, and they accepted that. So they were able to go and stay there. She fed them, took care of them while they were on their journey as missionaries. So as the story continues, the disciples are still in Philippi, uh, where they'll be for the rest of chapter 16. And the chapter records Paul's encounter with Lydia, the successful businesswoman, and his encounter with a slave girl, which we'll talk about beginning in verse 16. Women from opposite ends of the social and economic scale. But it also records the conversion of a Roman jailer and his entire household in verses 29 through 34. But demonstrating the ability of the gospel to penetrate into the hearts of people from all walks of life. And these three recipients of Paul's ministry, Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer, three different people, these were all of the people the Jews held in contempt. Women, slaves, and Gentiles. So this story encompasses all of that. It's very interesting. So let's, let's jump into this and uh, we're gonna pray and then we'll, we'll get all in it. God, we are thankful for the day. We are thankful for sunshine, God for uh, the warmth on our faces and uh, to be in this place, God, we're thankful for that. We pray right now, God, for um, as we have uh, sung this morning and we have already worshiped and through, through singing and through prayer and through baptism, 
uh, seeing two precious children go from death to life in their profession to this church and asking for that guidance and accountability. Thank you for Chat and Bree and what they mean to this church and uh, continue to work in their family, God. So right now, speak uh, these words, Lord. Help me to be clear in what I want to say and what you've laid on my heart to share this morning. So we thank you and we love you. In your son's name we pray, amen. So uh, speaking of prison, um, uh, December 10th, I decided to ask for something very, 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 very rewarding for Christmas. So I had shoulder surgery. And um, that's what I got for Christmas on December the 10th. And I had been told by, by many people, this, this will be the hardest thing you've ever done. And I'm like, whatever, I had knee surgery. I've gone this route before. My doctor even said, it's gonna be a slow process, but be patient. It, you know, it, it'll start to come around and, and you'll feel better, but it's going to be, be pretty limiting to begin with. Whatever, I can do this. So I have the surgery on December 10th and um, he was right, very right. Uh, anybody that's had this and, and everybody, you know, once you have something, everybody wants to share their stories, but it was mostly stories about, you know, my grandmother had that surgery and she hasn't used her arm in 20 years since that surgery, or my granddad died three days after his surgery. It's like, please stop talking about your dead grandparents and, and how bad it was for them. And why does everybody have to be old that has shoulder surgery, right? So I, I go through this and, you know, over the, the first few days, it was all just, you know, pain and, and trying to manage that. And that nerve block wears off at four o'clock in the morning on the nose, no warning, just like somebody just, you know, stabbed me in the arm. And so I'm, I'm kind of getting this, you know, and if you've ever seen that and you saw me some of that time, I had that, you know, that brace thing you wear around and pretty much tells everybody you had shoulder surgery, you know, in the whole world, everybody knows. So I'm walking around with this thing for six weeks, you have to be in this. Well, I was really excited. My First day of therapy was on Monday, on the Thursday, you know, had it on Thursday. Monday after that, I go to uh, PT. They give me my exercises, all these passive exercises, things like you can lean over and swing your arm. That's about all you can do, right? They manipulate it for you. It hurts like all get out. But they give me the exercises to do at home. I said, I'm gonna be your best patient. I promise you, I will do everything you ask me to do and, and then some. So I go Tuesday, I'm so proud, I go home. I'm doing like a hundred reps of everything they tell me to do. You know, I'm working hard three times a day. I go back Thursday and I'm so proud. You know, I'm getting in there to my PT person and uh, she goes, how you doing? I said, I'm good. I said, I have done a hundred reps of everything three times a day. I am, I'm feeling good. We're going to make this thing happen. She goes, you don't need to do that. I was like, what? She goes, it's still going to be six weeks. No matter how hard you work, you're not getting the brace off. I was like, I didn't ask for the brace. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. I did not ask to get the brace off. She said, you can do all you want, but it's really not gonna do any good or speed anything up. I was like, well, this is devastating. So the first six weeks were, reminded me of, you know, I, I don't wanna equate myself of being in prison like Paul, beaten and flogged and all the stuff that we're gonna talk about today. But this, this being like held captive to something, and some, you know, I, most of you who know me, I'm, I'm, I, I don't like to sit around a lot, okay? I'm kind of busy, like to do things, like to be on the go. And when your dominant arm is not working, it affects everything, everything. Let your mind go wherever you want to. It affects everything. Anything that you possibly want to do. 
from driving to, you know, whatever. We won't get into the weeds of all of it because this is church, but it is just an awful six weeks. So then after six weeks, the brace comes off. You can start doing a little bit more, but then I have to like train myself. You can use your arm again. You know, I'm constantly going to do things like this, like this. Oh yeah, this one's down here. I, I can use this. Just a retraining. And all this captivity in my mind kind of reminded me of where we're going in this story today. So I want you to look at Acts chapter 16, uh, beginning with verse 16. And we're gonna read uh, just a couple of verses here and jump into uh, what's going on. I wanna take this kind of verse by verse as we go and talk about the different things that are going on. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And that moment, the spirit left her. So the story has these parallels of three stories of Jesus exorcisms. If you remember the man with the unclean spirit uh, recorded in Mark and Luke, the Gerasene demoniac recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the Syrophoenician woman's daughter in Matthew and Mark. So three different exorcisms that Jesus does in the New Testament, this sort of parallels that. He says, once we were going to the place of prayer, and this appears to be the same place where they had the earlier encounter with Lydia, by a female slave, Lydia was both financially prosperous and socially independent, and the girl is neither. Neither one of these, because her owners, they kind of dictate her every action. They confiscate all the money that, that uh, she produces by her fortune telling. So they kind of pimp her out, basically, to do this fortune telling. It says that she had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And this was, in, in, in Greek, this was called pythona or pythona. And from that word, obviously, a python or the python spirit is what they're talking about. So in Greek mythology, the great serpent Python lived in a cave near Delphi and they guarded the or they, he guarded the oracle there. And this oracle provided divinely inspired wisdom to humans. So Greeks associated the Python with the divine inspiration. So when Luke says that this girl has a Python spirit, he means that people believe that she can tap into the divine, divine powers for wisdom and guidance. And that she is, in essence, a human intermediary of divine information and powers. So she earns a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So in reporting this, Luke kind of clearly sees a problem on two levels. First, the girl's owners have enslaved her for the purpose of enriching themselves. That's what it's all about, getting, getting money, getting more and more and more. And second, the spiritual powers to which this girl has access are demonic. So many similar forms of slavery exist throughout the world today. And if we think about the, the enslavement of different people, peddlers of sex and pornography often use enslaved children, male and female for their purposes. In some cases, they kidnap children. In others, they buy children for a small price from impoverished parents under false pre pretenses, we'll take your kids, we'll give you money for your kids and take care of them so you won't have the burden of that and then whisk them off to, to sell them. That goes on today. 
In nations torn by civil strife, rebels often capture children, turn them into killing machines. Middle Eastern nations often import female workers um, whose legal contracts constitute a form of indentured servitude. So any of us who think that uh, slavery ended after the American Civil War are sadly mistaken. It still goes on uh, just like it did in 49 and 52 AD. But for many days, this slave girl follows Paul and Silas back and forth. They're going to this place of prayer on a daily basis and they're sharing the gospel and she follows them. And I can't really imagine what this looks like other than having this this young girl just following behind them, kind of probably seeming a little cray cray, yelling behind them all the time. And they're walking, they're like, oh, here she comes again. She's walking up behind them. And she begins to to yell, the, the same phrase over and over, according to Luke, these men are all servants of the most high God. These men are servants of the most high God. And they just keep announcing it and keep announcing it. So this isn't a bad thing or, or an untruth. This woman who's a slave to demonic spirits and evil men, they, she recognizes that Paul and his companions are slaves to the most high God. Because if you remember, Paul would he wouldn't disagree with it because in Romans, he introduces himself as Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And the word used here means bond servant, someone he belongs to, he belongs to Jesus Christ. So the most high God was another name for Yahweh as she's referring to, or the God that we serve. And that was salvation for the Hellenistic world. God was liberation from the powers which controlled the destiny of people. But the continual shouting of this girl annoyed Paul. It's like he just became really human all of a sudden, like this is getting old. And he confronted the evil spirit in the same way as the demon-possessed person. He exercised the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. So he just gets tired of her coming up behind him, walking back and forth, and he just finally turns around and he goes, in the name of Jesus Christ, get out of her. Just like that, exercises the spirit. And the girl regained her sanity, and it says immediately. So this exorcism demonstrates God's power over demonic spirits. Let's continue on with verse 19. So when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So to her owners, the girl is nothing but a money machine, Seeing that Paul has wrecked their business venture, now they're going to try to wreck Paul and Silas's venture. They take them into the marketplace. This was the, the public square, the center of the city where booths are set up, people are buying and selling, trading, doing all those things. But the marketplace would also be where authorities would hold public court. So things would happen here and, and uh, they would gather together for this. So they brought them before the magistrates. So it's the slave girl's owners who bring Paul and Silas before the magistrates. Most likely this would be two men appointed by Rome to administer the civil affairs of the city, to keep things under control in the city. It says, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. So these accusers avoid honest accusation of what Paul really did by casting out the demon. They say nothing about Paul and Silas ruining their little business venture. 
Instead, just as Jesus' accusers did, they concoct this misleading charges to make it easier to get a guilty verdict. They accuse Paul and Silas of creating a public disturbance, a charge that city officials, they have to take seriously because there was something about disturbances in this day and time that they just did not like because they would probably get out of hand so quickly. So the official charge uh, would be about disturbing the peace. And officials could not tolerate this or stand back and let it happen. Well, the next thing in verse uh, 20, they say, these men are Jews. They also accuse Paul and Silas of being Jews, which of course is true because they are Jewish. And it's not illegal to be a Jew, but these accusers are, are hoping to kind of hook into anti-Semitic sentiments among the officials and the crowd because Jews were known for starting riots and causing disturbances. The Jews would gather around and, and get these people stirred up. So the people don't accuse Paul and Silas of being Christians because Paul and Silas have just begun to introduce Christianity to Macedonia. So now Greece and the people. For the most part, they have no idea that they are Christians or what that even means. Well, it continues on to say, by advocating customs unlawful to us. It's another one of their accusations. They're advocating customs unlawful to us. Most likely this was proselytism, right? Which was basically the charge is, you're trying to get people to join a cult, Right? You're trying to get people to join a cult that's not recognized by the Roman government. But by this time, officials do not usually prosecute people for this. For us Romans to accept or practice. So in the previous verse, the accusers, the slave girl owners, have identified Paul and Silas as Jews. Now they identify themselves as Romans a status that they enjoy as citizens of Philippi, a Roman colony. Roman citizenship comes with a number of privileges, highly respected. So by characterizing Paul and Silas as Jews and themselves, the accusers, as Romans, Paul's accusers are trying to establish this good guy, bad guy contrast with themselves being the good guys, of course. What the accusers do not know, but Paul will later reveal in verse 37, is that he and Silas are also Roman citizens. So the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And this parallels, of course, the situation that Jesus faced where the crowd demanded that he punished and, and authorities bowed to the demands of the crowd. He just gives in to what the crowd is trying to say and, and what they want. But in, usually in this kind of situation, the magistrate should arrest the accused, schedule a trial to hear the accusation, weigh the evidence. This procedure is designed in part to separate the whole process of mob mentality and mob rule and give the accused a fair trial in front of impartial judges. But these magistrates fail to observe proper procedure, instead bow to the crowd's demands and go for immediate punishment. So after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully in verse 23. So the authorities would typically imprison anyone that they had flogged. It's the next thing that would happen. So when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet to the stocks. This happens in verse 24. 
So here's the stage. It's all set now for what we see where Paul and Silas are. The jailer was ordered to keep these prisoners secured, place them in the innermost cell at the heart of the prison, most likely some type of dungeon. There would be no light at night, very little during the day. There would be little provision of sanitation, ventilation, so the stench would be terrible. Beaten backs, you understand what the flogging was, either a cat of nine tails was the whip with the nine strands on it, had rocks and glass and things tied to the end of it that they would be beaten with. So their backs are opened up, they have open wounds, they are, they're, you know, could be open for infection. Feet are fastened in stocks that would add physical discomfort, not able to really move around or shift your position. Prisoners would grow very uncomfortable by the minute. And it's difficult to imagine a more terrible place than where they were. See, this work Paul had done with the slave girl obviously did not sit well. Men do not applaud this type of work when their money is at stake. Don't mess with a person's money, right? People tend to lead the lawless element against those who might have done something good. When someone's rights, especially their money, is taken away, the tendency is to go rogue. Let's continue on with the story. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Just think about it. We just described where they were, right? In an awful, awful environment. Their backs are opened up, little ventilation. I'm sure there's all kind of uh, human excrement all throughout this place. Just an awful, awful place to be. And Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God. I'll tell you, for the first few days after my surgery, I was not singing hymns to God. I was singing something, but it wasn't, it wasn't good stuff. I, I, got, I got pretty low, pretty down after my surgery. It was just six weeks. It was six weeks of hell for me. It was awful awful of being confined. It makes me feel like an absolute bozo to think about these men in this prison in the worst possible scenario and they're singing hymns to God and praying. At midnight, the darkness would be like all encompassing. Think how dark that is. Luke gives us no information concerning the, the content of these prayers, but the hymn singing makes it clear that Paul and Silas are anything but depressed, defeated prisoners. They are not depressed. They are not defeated. And then it says, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Remember that. The other prisoners were listening to them. Some of these prisoners have probably been there for days in this terrible place. And it probably would be the first time they've heard anyone praying and singing hymns there. So the actions of Paul and Silas are a powerful witness to the rest of the prisoners. Well, suddenly there was a, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken in verse 26. See, Philippi is a known for, it's an area known for earthquakes. So the jailer and other magistrates would not have seen this event as a supernatural occurrence to liberate prisoners. It would have just been like another earthquake. 
It's kind of like living in California. So it just happens. Just kind of hang on, let it pass and move on. But at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Not a normal earthquake, right? Not when the chains fly off. Not when the stocks come off. This is a little bit different. This is the point. Using an earthquake for his purposes, God opens the prison's doors, unfastens the prisoner's chains so that Paul and Silas are free to escape. And Lucas told us about two occasions in the past when God opened prison's doors, allowing disciples to escape. In the first instance, you may recall, Peter and other disciples were healing large numbers of people in the temple. When the high priest had the disciples arrested and put in public prison, And it says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, go stand and speak in the temple to the people, all the words of of this life. In the second instance, Herod arrested Peter and delivered him to four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, an extraordinary measure of security. However, even though Peter was bound with chains and sleeping between two soldiers, an angel freed him. And these stories are intended to show that even powerful men using their utmost to stifle the gospel cannot defeat the people who God has sent to proclaim the gospel. See, the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he knew the prisoners had escaped. That may seem odd that this jailer did not examine the cells carefully before deciding to kill himself. But people under great stress often panic, and this jailer is certainly panicked. Because it does say when he woke up, so obviously he was sleeping. When the angel delivered Peter from prison in an earlier instance, Herod executed the guards for dereliction of duty. This jailer knows that this, his life is over. If even one prisoner has escaped, even one gets away and all the prison doors are open, so surely more than one prisoner has escaped. There's another reason too why the jailer would contemplate suicide. Under Roman law, a guard was responsible with his life for the security of those under his custody. So not only can he expect to be killed if a prisoner has escaped, but he will be also humiliated by his peers who will also carry out the execution. Fear of humiliation would have been enough for him to contemplate suicide. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. So picture this again, still in all the excrement, doors are open, chains are off, can see the light. We're just gonna hang out for a few more minutes. Kinda like it here. It's a good place to worship. Did you hear the hymns? Did you hear the prayer? Just gonna hang here for a minute. But not only have Paul and Silas remained in prison, but the other prisoners have done the same thing. They're all still there. Maybe God calls the prisoners to delay their escape. Maybe Paul and Silas persuaded them to stay. I don't know. They'd have had to have some powerful Jesus stuff floating around for me to stay in that. Paul understands the pressure that the jailer is under and the possibility that he will kill himself. And he calls out to reassure the jailer that all the prisoners are still present. The miracle that God has worked is not just for the deliverance of Paul and Silas, but also for the deliverance of the jailer. 
The jailer called for torches to check on the security of the prisoners and he saw Paul and Silas and he rushed into the cell. And the first thing he says, sirs, what, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer's panic, his relief on discovering that they were still there made him open to whatever Paul and Silas are serving up here. Because the jailer's question can be understood on two levels. He could be asking, what must I do to be saved from execution from the authorities? But as we will see in the next verse, Paul and Silas hear the jailer's question as having to do with something so much more eternal. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Paul says. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul and Silas use the jailer's question as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to him. We do not know of any acquaintance or any interaction this guard had with Paul prior to this. We don't even know if this, this jailer heard anything that Paul had been preaching in the streets for the first few days he was there. We do know that he witnessed prayer singing, and now some sort of miracle busting the chains off of prisoners. He also witnessed their genuine care and concern for his life by not escaping when they had the chance. So Paul previously had the background of rituals and customs to, to share the gospel with people. He had a sort of a backdrop to be able to preach from and saying, you Jewish people, you've been doing this and, and these rituals and these, these creeds and this all this and had all this stuff around to be able to show, like living illustrations, constantly being able to preach. But here, Paul is alone with only his call from God for these Gentiles and the gospel of freedom and forgiveness. All he has are chains and stocks on his feet. Because the message of salvation was simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No rites or creeds, but trust in the one savior and commitment to the one Lord. It applies in every situation to any person, every situation to any person. He goes on to say, you and your household in verse 31, Paul and Silas make it clear to the jailer that his household can enjoy the same salvation that they are offering to him. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. This proclamation of the gospel continues this time to the jailer and all who were in his house his family, possibly servants as well. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. So the jailer demonstrates his new faith by taking care of their wounds and by being baptized and his family was also baptized. He responded to God. The jailer washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes and he himself was washed from his sins. So in verse 34, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. 
See, this is no small matter. Paul also recognizes that they were acceptable for table fellowship in his gospel. Remember the Jews and the Gentiles, they don't get together. Certainly don't break bread together. That's a very intimate thing during this day and time. Even as we celebrate uh, life events, we, we gather around food and we use food to celebrate and we, we gather people around us who we know and who we like, right? We don't eat with people we don't like because they could take our food. They could mess us up, right? We don't do that. We break bread when it's safe. Food in and of itself is a necessity, but a real test of Christian fellowship is the willingness for us to sit down, eat with people regardless of race, class, social status, or any other division we have assumed. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it opened these doors for even Paul to see it. He's preaching this gospel and then he realizes, I'm called to sit with this man. I'm called to sit with this family who is different from me because of what Jesus has done for me and for him. So what's known as sort of the epilogue of this chapter in verses 35 through 40 as this story continues through the end of chapter 16, the following morning, the magistrates send word to the jailer to let Paul and Silas go. When the jailer relays that information to Paul and Silas, Paul says, they have beaten us publicly. I love this. This is kind of like, you know, your favorite show that you watch and you want to have a little bit of something just to feel good, like, all right, I know Paul's just going to go on his way and just quietly leave. And, you know, they're, they're glad to be gone. They have beaten us publicly without a trial, men who are Romans, and have cast us into prison. Do they now release us secretly? No, most certainly. But let them come themselves and bring us out. So they're still in this prison when the door is open, sitting there. And he's like, I ain't leaving on my own. No, you do this publicly, you're gonna come let me out. Just kind of feels good, doesn't it? You know? And this strikes fear in the heart of the magistrates. And I know Paul is trying to make a point to them. You, you gave us false charges. I'm gonna make you uncomfortable for a little bit because they do not have the authority to beat and jail Roman citizens without due process of law. The magistrates come to the jail to apologize. And the first thing they do, will you please leave town now? first thing they do. We're really sorry this happened, but if y'all could just go ahead and just ease on out of here, that would be helpful for us. Paul and Silas visit Lydia's home to encourage her and her family, probably want a good meal again before they leave and they head out of town. It's the end of the story. It ends right there. But there's a couple of things that I want to point out. You see, Paul and Silas, after they leave and are going on about their business, it makes me think of where we are today. And what I've gone through personally, what many of you have gone through personally, 2020, I mean, was a year from hell. Amen? 2021 has not realized that it's 2021 yet, right? 
nothing really changed. I don't know about for you, but when I rang in the new year, everything didn't reset. It just continued, right? We're still in this turmoil. We're still in this midst of all this stuff going on. Many of you have lost loved ones to a pandemic and other things. Many of you have have gone through some of the most horrific times of your life over the past year and over the past even weeks. I've experienced awful, awful things. But this reminds me as I'm looking at Paul and Silas and reading the story of them in prison and they're singing and praying. It makes me think of first, I don't wanna have this blind faith that no matter what happens, that I'm gonna just sing and dance. And people look at me like I'm a nutcase. Like I don't think that reality is set in. Bless his heart. You know, you just get one of those. But what I do see is in the midst of struggle, in the midst of pain, as bad as things are, that we celebrate, that we know that God is with us because we realize how temporal this is. And we're singing and dancing and praying. I throw dancing in there because you know I love to dance. So I I throw that in there because I think that's what we're supposed to do. We respond out of this joy and this gratefulness to God in the midst of our pain, in the midst of what's going on. And in the midst of our pain, I'm talking to those of us in this room who claim to know Jesus Christ and who follow Jesus Christ. What do the people around you see? If you're in your prison and the excrement of life is all around you, the ventilation is poor, the lighting is terrible, what does your neighbor see your response being? Who are you in that moment? Do they see someone who's singing hymns and praying? Or do they see someone who's shaking their fist at God and, and, and just walking away from all this faith stuff? This is, this is just, just all a bunch of bull and I can't do this anymore because God's not here with me. I don't know where he is. He can handle the question, I promise you that. He can handle shaking the fist. But where is, where is the response in you? If you really, really believe what this word says, and if we really, really or taking that in, where is the response? Who are you in the midst of pain and suffering? Maybe you represent the jailer who had not even heard the gospel, but just witnessed it. Saw it play out in a dungeon. Have you seen and heard that gospel? We talk about four cultures here at connection and it's represented all throughout this story. And Brandon and I, before the service, we're talking about this. And I was like, these things are, these things are all throughout there. When we talk about generosity and, and Lydia, at the beginning of the story, giving her things to these strangers who had just shared the gospel with her, her response was, let me give you what I have. I want to help you. There was community all around this from what Lydia provided, community from the jailer when they sat down with his family and had a meal together. They communed together. There was serving. God, when the jailer, 
he takes them in and washes them, washes their wounds that very likely the jailer may have had some involvement in, putting his hands on the very wounds that he may have caused, cleans them up and feeds them, serves them. And of course, evangelism, we talk about that as one of our cultures. And Paul evangelized to this jailer just by singing and praying in front of him in one of the lowest points of his life. All the way to the point where the jailer says, what do I have to do to be saved? I want that. I want that response in the midst of tragedy. I want to be able to sing and dance and pray when life sucks. Where is your response? How do you respond in the midst of that? Maybe today that is where you are. Maybe for the first time you hear the gospel. Maybe you've heard it over and over and over, but for the first time today you hear God saying, here it is. This is how simple it is. Believe in me and you will be saved. That's it. And then commit. Commit to following that one Lord. Believe in Christ and commit to following the one Lord. If that's the decision you want to make today, we love to celebrate this, just like we love to celebrate baptisms. But if that's the decision you want to make today, I just ask you to stand to your feet. We'll want to celebrate with you. Once you heard that message for the first time today, or maybe the 50th time, the thousandth time, but God is saying today's the day. Here's where you begin your journey. Just stand to your feet right where you are. All right, so let's assume we're all brothers and sisters in here, right? I would like for my prayer for me personally and for each person in here today to be that question that asks, what do people see from me in the midst of my pain? What do people see from me in response to a pandemic? What do people see from me when all the murmurings and negativity may be going on by what somebody believes or doesn't believe? Where they fall on the spectrum of a mask or not a mask, a vaccine or not a vaccine, I don't care. But how do people see you respond in that? Do they see singing and dancing and praying? That may be figurative, but they see a genuine response of Christ in you. So that's my prayer for us today. And I want us to do that for just a couple minutes. Let's pray. And I feel like it's a sort of going out and attacking the gates of hell with water pistols that we all go in there together as we face this world, as we face the things that are going on around us that God has so much for us and wants so much for us in the midst of life that happens here. So let's pray together. God, 
We thank you for, for Paul. We thank you for Silas. We thank you for this story that is so appropriate to, to where we are. This story was just as appropriate two years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, because we have all been imprisoned by something. We've all been held captive by something. But God, I pray for each person who is here, each person who may be watching online, that if we sit here and we are feeling like we are held captive, we may not be able to change those circumstances, God. We may not be able to change them very quickly, but we can change the way we respond to them. So I pray, God, that, that we are able to see into each other's lives, that you open up opportunities for ministry for each of us to encourage each other, to be able to say to each other, hey, it looks like you need an extra hand today. Help us to do that for each other, God. Help us to love each other through our pain and help us to respond the way you want us to respond. So God, we thank you and we love you. In your son's name we pray, amen.